Why should every adult read books written for children? I mean, the one that stands out would be Green Eggs and Ham, only in the sense that this is a book I never got sick of reading. Bruce Handy will be here to talk about his new book, Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. How clear-cut is the line between life and death? Many thousands of other patients around the world are, are diagnosed as, as being in a vegetative state. But when we put it into the scanner, we saw actually something quite different. Neuroscientist Adrian Owen will tell us about his new book, Into the Gray Zone. And Parle Sagal, who we all know here, will talk to us about her new role as staff book critic for The New York Times. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Bruce Handy is here now to talk about his first book. It's called Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. Bruce, thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me, Pamela. Well, this is a topic that I like, as you know, as the former children's book editor. And and you, often my editor. Yes. And you review children's books for us. And this book came out of a piece that you did for The New York Times. Yeah, I wrote a piece. It was when the the film of uh, Where the Wild Things was was coming out. And it really made me reflect on that book because that, that was a book that as a kid I really – just hadn't liked, and I hadn't, I, I didn't get it. You know, the, it, the sort of the fantasy and the and the dream logic of it sort of escaped me. I like, I think I like more rational fantasy. Like I like Dorothy's house being picked up and taken by a tornado and plunked down in Oz, and then there was a map of Oz you could look at. I mean, there's a kind of, I guess, I, I guess I like fantasy with sort of a rational side. And so the the forest just kind of growing in Max's room and where the wild things are, and then suddenly sailing across this mysterious sea and in and out of days and months, and I forget the exact quote. Sort of escaped me. I mean, I. I I had a sense of it as an important book. I knew that librarians liked it. I, you know, I saw the Caldecott sticker on it, and that, you know, that impressed me. Cut to, I don't know, thirty years later, maybe. Can't think of the math exactly, but yeah, when my when my uh, oldest child, my daughter, was born, we were given a bunch of books as baby gifts, which. As far as I'm concerned, I guess obviously because I wrote this book, I think it's the best baby gift anyway. Can but, we reveal uh, that she's now in college? Yeah, she's now in college. She's a junior at Washington University. My son, I have two children. My my younger son, Isaac, is about to be a uh, freshman in college. So, uh, yeah, sort of ironically, literally, I think five days after my official pub date, I become an empty nester. But anyway, so yeah, so then, then being presented, somebody gave us uh, Where the Wild Things Are and reading it as an adult suddenly— it just unfolded to me, and it, I was like, oh, my God, this is this this incredible kind of Freudian, psychologically tinged, you know, fairy tale, the, the dream logic, which which had just sort of escaped me or, or didn't interest me as a kid. Suddenly I was I was fascinated by, and, and, and it felt like it was this, this great parable about anger and dealing with anger. And I, so I loved it. You know, as, as an adult, it just it spoke to me, and, and I realized, yes, this is the masterpiece that the Caldecott sticker years ago told me it was. Were you like a good, obedient child? I was a goody-goody. I think that that What Are the Wild Things Are, which I agree is a great book, but I think that for the good, obedient child, they don't necessarily relate to it because they're like, you know, you chase that dog with a fork. You deserve (laughs) it. And like, I don't even think you should be able to go where the wild things are. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, I mean, I I must have at least intuited that Max kind of initiates his adventure somehow, whereas Dorothy is very passive. You know, the, the tornado, you know, picks her up or Lucy is and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She's, yeah, they're playing hide and seek and she just kind of stumbles through this wardrobe into this. So maybe, yeah, I guess I like passive heroes and heroines more than Well, Lucy uh, also was good and deserved to go somewhere. Yes. Good. Yes, Interesting. exactly. Yeah. You know, where do you stand on the in the night kitchen versus where the wild things are? Because I find that people tend to fall into kind of one 
camp versus the other. I'm 58. So in, in the Night Kitchen, I was kind of beyond the picture book age when that came out. So I, I had no no relationship with that book as a kid. I find as an adult, I, I, it doesn't really work for me. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by it as a work. And I think the art is some of Sendak's greatest art. And mm-hmm. it, it references Windsor McKay, who's yes, uh, like a, a hero of mine. But yeah, I find it somehow, it seems forced to me where there's something sort of really organic about where the wild things are. This feels more forced or, or more, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, so like an I'm, adult imposing kind of adult ideas into a childhood scenario? Kind of, yeah, exactly. I mean, it obviously deals with, with issues of sexuality, and I think it's just a more, I, I, to me, it's a more self-conscious book. I'm sort of fascinated by it, and and I appreciate its artistry. Yeah, just I, I don't know if it works really as, as, as a kind of a narrative I think where it's do you, more appealing. Ask, where do you, yeah, where do you I think it's more it? appealing to adults. I didn't. I didn't read it as a child. I, re- I read where the wild things are. But as an adult, one of the ways that I think about children's books, and I'm curious if you write about this in in your book, is there are books that children love that adults do not love that they tolerate, and then there are ones that the adults really love too, sometimes more than the kids. And in particular, I find with with picture books and with bedtime books, they're the kinds that you can read again and again and again and again, and you don't get bored. So for me, Good Night Moon is one of those books, but also In the Night Kitchen. get a little bored during Where Mm -hmm. the Wild Things Are, but In the Night Kitchen, maybe because it's so nonsensical, and mm-hmm. and there's so much possibility in it. And as you pointed out earlier, the artwork is really phenomenal. The New York City sort of constructed out of kitchen and, and the World War II Holocaust illusions. Like there's just – there's such a, a rich, mysterious landscape in it that I yeah. feel like I can read it again and again and again. Yeah, I definitely had that with uh, Good Night Moon. And also for me, what, the one book that I never – I could read again and again. And I, I think it's probably maybe literally the only children's book I could read again and again and never get sick of was, was Green Eggs and Ham. I mean, both because, you know, it's obviously wonderful and it's and it's funny. But also I just found like, you know, the the rhythm of it and his his poetry. Totally. I mean, obviously, you know, that's that's kind of a Dr. Seuss thing. But I think that's really – I think it's really the apex of, of his stuff. I just feel the, the rhythms would just sort of carry me through it. And it's it's fun too. I mean, for me, it, o- it almost felt like – and I think a lot of picture books are like this too. You know, it's, it's almost like a children's book. It's almost like a great standard where you can you can kind of do different things with it. You can – each time yes. you can hit different emphases. Totally. You know, and, and that's part of the fun too because then you – in doing that, you also see different things in the book. You know, not just not just rhythmically, but also just in, in terms of what the what the author is uh, doing. So, listeners who are not familiar with Bruce Handy's work, he was at Spy Magazine, at Vanity Fair, where he still contributes for a long time. So, not entirely within the world of children's books. What's different about criticism, book criticism, and appreciation of children's books from other? books or maybe even other kinds of culture? I, th- I think it's like it's sort of going in with with kind of a, I don't know, maybe a not a skeptical eye, but a, a hopefully discerning eye, but then also an open heart, I think, you know, so it's wanting to be open to, you know, the experience, but then also, you know, bringing sort of critical thinking. And I do feel there's this, this thing where you, where you do have to sort of you have to inject some personality in, into into criticism. I think just in in the sense that so people kind of know what what you're where you're coming from. You know, I was I, I never it, it always bothers me when people are are really didactic. But I just want people to understand if I'm if I'm saying I don't like something, hopefully they they have a sense. Uh, well, maybe you know I might still like that because I understand you know where he's coming from, and you know maybe that is where you know maybe that I would agree with that, or maybe I wouldn't. The subtitle of your book is The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult, The Joy and the, and the Sadness. But what is it that makes 
reading these books as an adult different from when you read them as a child? And and I'm interested if there's a different answer for books that you're encountering for the first time as an adult and then for the books that you recall from your own childhood. And well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Goodnight Moon was a book I didn't know as, as, a, as a kid. It, it's um, been in print since it was published, I believe, in 1947. I might have the date off by a year or two. But yeah, it didn't really become it didn't really become Goodnight Moon, the ubiquitous uh, children's book. I think until the you know the eighties. I mean, I, yeah, I wish I could imagine how I would have responded to it as a kid. But as an adult, just you know the artistry of it and and the the creativity and the way you know Margaret Wise Brown seemingly effortlessly just sort of captures the and speaks to the mindset of a, of an infant or a you know a, an early a young toddler. You know, I mean, I love that that opening line in the great green room, because that just so sets the stage, you know, because a kid, you know, for a kid, a room is great. And the, the idea of the great room is, it has sort of a, you know, there's, there's kind of a, a mystery to it too, which I think is true. And it actually, you know, reading that book to my kids and, and other people have told me this too, it actually kind of sparked kind of weird sort of shards of, of very early primitive memories in me that I hadn't, I hadn't remembered before. What other books do you write about in Wild Things? And, and how did you make the decisions of like, this is what I'm going to focus on? Because you... You don't cover the entire territory. Yeah, I, I realized pretty quickly, I think, when I was sort of conceptualizing the book, there are some great, you know, histories of, of children's books or, or surveys of certain genres, you know, that that, that do that. But, I, yeah, I really wanted to be able to have the time to really sort of explore certain works and, and really sort of get into what – why they work and, and to some extent, in some cases, how I – my own – you know, response it had changed over the years. I was hoping that there would be sort of a, you know, that most of these books would be familiar to the to the readers of, of Wild Things. This is a terrible question, and I'm going to ask it nonetheless, but I'll give you a little out. I want to ask you sort of what's your favorite children's book, which is obnoxious. So you can yeah. answer with more than one. Okay. I mean, the one that stands out would be Green Eggs and Ham, only in the sense that this is a book I never got sick of reading. I think... One book that I don't talk about much, I think I, I mentioned in passing in this book, but that I did love as, as a kid and I still love as an adult and I enjoyed reading to my kids was Go Dog Go. Oh, P.D. You know, Eastman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the text is what it is, but I just love the um, I love the drawings. And especially when I was a kid, I was really fascinated by the dog party at the end. I would spend hours staring at the, the – it's a big – if people don't know the book, there's a, there's a big – the book ends with these all these dogs having a huge party on top of this sort of crazy tree. It almost looks like a you know one of those crazy trees from a Yes album cover or something. But there's all this you know they're they're playing volleyball on top of the tree. They're eating cake. Somebody's being shot out of a cannon. There's just all this crazy stuff going on. And I was just obsessed with that that drawing when I was a kid. I also I have Richard Scarry also those books. Oh, I love just getting Did you lost. Like, I in am those. a bunny. I don't know that one. Oh, That's my Richard God. So Scary? Richard Scarry did this book, I Am a Bunny. And actually, P.D. Eastman did this, too, with the book Snow and with the companion oh, yeah. volume Summer, which is that both of them raised expectations of what a season could be in such a way that, that like, the rest of my life has been disappointing. So I Am a Bunny is it's sort of a pre-busy world kind of art style for Richard Scarry, these fairly sumptuous painted bunnies and the bunny goes through his name is Nicholas he goes through the seasons and you've got to look for this book it's a tall format board book but once you look at it it's like spring is never going to have those kind of strawberries and it's not going to be that good and then P.D. Eastman (laughs) I don't know if I want to ruin spring for myself maybe I better stay away from this (laughs) P.D. Eastman in snow for example he had these perfect igloos just these phenomenal igloos and and you realize after a period of time during your childhood, hopefully it doesn't go on until adulthood, that you're never going to make that igloo. Like that igloo only exists in that P.D. Eastman book. Yeah. And and the snowball fights too. The snowballs are not as good as yeah. they are in P.D. Eastman's snow. 
That's so funny. Yeah, also, yeah, it makes me think of the snowy day, too. There's some great snowballs in uh, that when Peter's running away from the big boys. I love that spread. You know, for a book with the joy of reading children's literature as an adult as a subtitle, we're ending on a very melancholy note. Yeah. Anything joyful to add? Going back to your previous question about favorite books, probably my favorite my favorite sort of middle-grade book would be Ramona of the Past, which I just, to me, is just an amazing masterpiece. I, I love pretty much everything Beverly Cleary wrote or has written. She just celebrated her 100th birthday, I think. Was it earlier this year or mm-hmm. last year? To me, Ramona of the Past, you know, kind of reigns supreme. I just, I just, it's such a great portrait of a— of, a, of an amazing character and, and just the, the way, you know, Ramona's kind of having to deal with the, with the, the kind of socialization of, of, of kindergarten. It's just, it's incredible. And, and it's certainly something, I mean, it's very vivid and takes you back to kindergarten, but I think you can also take things away about, you know, it's a human predicament of kind of having to deal with, with social situations and, and people and figuring out your place in them. Yeah. And plus it's all, it's funny. It's, I just can't say enough about that book, but you have to find the early edition with the Lewis Darling drawings because those are the best. They, they've published new new editions with kind of, you know, updated drawings, which which I suppose makes, you know, commercial sense, but it's, just, it's not the same. It's not the same. All right, grownups, go back and read these books and read Bruce's book. It's called Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult by Bruce Handy. Bruce, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Adrian Owen joins us now from Halifax, Nova Scotia, to talk about his new book, Into the Gray Zone, a neuroscientist explores the border between life and death. Adrian, thanks for being here. Thanks very much for having me on. This is such a fascinating topic and one that has gotten a lot of attention. You're a cognitive neuroscientist. How did you start to explore what happens when people are in a vegetative state? Well, this is really a story that began... 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago to the day, to be honest, I I trained in cognitive neuroscience. I knew a lot about the brain. I knew a lot about some of the new and sophisticated brain imaging or brain scanning technologies that were being developed at the time. And I was introduced one day to uh, a patient whose name was Kate, uh, who was in a vegetative state. And my colleagues and I thought, well, you know, we don't know much about this condition. It's very mysterious. These patients open their eyes. They they appear to be awake a lot of the time, but they seem to be completely unaware of who they are and where they are and the, the predicament that, that they're in. Let's, let's maybe put this woman into, into a brain scanner and see what's going on, see if we can get to the bottom of what's actually going on in her brain. And that really started, it, well, it started the book and it started this, this, this whole story, this whole... Um, this investigation into what's going on in the minds of people who apparently are in a vegetative state. Let's talk a little bit more about Kate. This is Kate Bainbridge, a nursery school teacher from Cambridge, England, who went into this sort of vegetative state under really uh, unusual circumstances. What happened with her? She was unusual. There was a virus that had attacked her brain. She she presented at hospital with flu-like symptoms. She very quickly lapsed into a coma that means she has eyes closed and she looked like she was asleep all the time. And then gradually she started to wake up. She opened her eyes. She would grunt and groan occasionally, appear to look around the room, but not, not fixate or look at anything in particular. But nobody could elicit any responses from her. If you asked her to look this way or that way, nothing would happen. If you asked her to squeeze your hand, she, she wouldn't do that. She, would, she was completely non-responsive. And that's the basis upon which she and, and many thousands of other patients around the world are, are diagnosed as, as being in a vegetative state. But 
when we put her into the scanner, we saw actually something quite different. So you put her into a PET scanner. First explain what that is and then what you saw. So PET scanning was, uh, it's, it's an older technology that we used at the time. It's, it stands for positron emission tomography. It uses uh, a small uh, amount of radiation to look at brain activity, to look at which parts of the brain are working normally and which parts aren't working normally. In Kate's case, we showed her pictures of her friends and family while she was lying in the scanner. And the reason we did that is because there's a part of the brain that we know is involved in recognizing faces. It always lights up when you recognize a familiar face, somebody that you know. And this is exactly what happened with Kate, despite the fact that if we asked her if she recognized the face, she would, she would have produced no response. When we put her into the scanner and we showed her pictures of faces, her brain responded in a way that told us that her brain was recognizing faces. It was responding. So what's interesting with Kate is that, you know, often with in cases like this, you're sort of still left, well, not knowing, not knowing if, if this meant what, what you thought it meant. But in her case, she recovered partially. So what, what happened? That's right. She's made a fantastic recovery. She's still around 20 years later. And, and actually, in writing the chapter about her in the book, I went back to see her in Cambridge to sort of re revisit the experiences that she had had in, in coming out of her vegetative state. And it's very interesting how she describes this, this period where she was, she was clearly emerging. She was clearly aware of some of the things going on around her, some of the decisions that were being made, some of the conversations that were being had in her presence, yet no one around her knew that she was actually aware. And I, I think anybody listening to this could, could appreciate that that must be an absolutely terrifying situation to be in. She describes the, the day that we scanned her as being the point at which we found her. She says, you know, the scan was like magic. It found me. And I understand exactly what she means. I mean, she also said, that's where I became a person again. And it's because when we saw that her brain was responsive, everybody around her started to behave differently. And I, I, I can understand exactly what she means by I became a person again. Mm -hmm. People you know, uh, uh, suddenly assume a personality. They realize there is somebody in there that they're after all, and, and people began to behave very differently around her. Was she able to describe what it felt like being in that gray zone? Absolutely, she, she was. And, and yeah, I talk about this, this in the book. And so, you know, some of the experiences she had were, were positive experiences in the sense that she realized that she was coming out and she was going to be able to interact with the world again. She was going to take her place in the world, if you like. But some of the experiences were actually quite quite harrowing. She describes trying to hold her breath you know, in order to accelerate her death, which is absolutely a terrifying idea. But it's not the only time I've ever, ever heard a, a story like this. And she had a raging thirst on many occasions. And of course, she was unable to indicate to anybody around her that she, she, you know, she would like something to be, to be done about that. So it, yes, it's a mixture of, of positive and, and negative emotions, I think. Is it unusual for someone to come out of a vegetative state like that? Did she recover entirely from a, a mental point of view? Yes, she, she has. I mean, she really is back to her former self in a sort of a mental or a cognitive point of view. I mean, she physically still has some challenges. She still uses a wheelchair to get around. But her recovery as far as her understanding of the world and the way she interacts with the world has, has been really quite extraordinary. But there's another example that I describe in the book of a patient known as Juan, whose recovery was even more extraordinary. He went from being apparently completely vegetative to nine months later, he was walking again, talking again, and describing 
every experience he had while he was apparently in a vegetative state. So we know that while rare, this sort of thing does happen from time to time. This just changes the whole notion of what a vegetative state is, which I think for a long time people assumed was a body that was largely brain dead and not aware. I think you're right. And I I mean, I, I think we have to be very careful not to blow this out of proportion. I mean, the two studies that have been conducted on this suggest that about one in five patients who appear to be entirely vegetative will, will turn out to be something else. But of course, in every town, city and country of the world, there are patients who are apparently in a vegetative state. And when you add up all of those people, even if it is only one in five or, or 20%, it's still an awful lot of people who aren't what they appear to be. And I, I think that's the important message here, that in, in this patient population, what you see is not necessarily what's, what's really going on there. There are many patients who appear to be non-responsive, who appear to be lost to the entire world, but actually they have some residual cognition. And in some cases, we know that they are entirely aware. So is this part of the process now when someone is in a vegetative state? Do they routinely get a scan with these kinds of tests to determine if this person is one of those one in five who are not actually entirely vegetative? No, this is still something that isn't a standard clinical practice. I mean, I have to say, in spite of the fact that we've been doing it for 20 years, in some ways, we're still at very early days. It requires a, you know, a lot of very advanced technology and, and people with a lot of knowledge to analyze the data and, and understand exactly what's going on. But you know, over the course of the last 10 years, I can say that more and more patients around the world are getting access to this, this kind of technology. And again, it's important that this is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not that every patient should necessarily be scanned because in some cases uh, the brain damage is, is so extensive that it's obvious there won't be any residual cognitive function. But I very, very much believe that many more patients than than those that currently get access sh should have access to this technology in the future. Now, the technology is no longer a PET scanner. It's now an fMRI. That's right. And that, that's really changed everything. And you know, it's, I think it changed everything because it's a, it's a lot easier. We're a lot better at it. And of course, there's, there's no radiation involved. There really aren't any harmful effects of, of having an MRI scan. So it means you can have many, many scans. I mean, one of the problems we used to have with PET is that, you know, very, very quickly, we were getting to the point where sort of standard ethical criteria would prevent us from doing any more scans in a patient much the same reason that you, you shouldn't have too many x-rays in your life if you can possibly help it. And with fMRI, that's not the case. You can do it again and again and again. And that's been tremendously useful in allowing us to scan patients many times and understand a lot about them and even to go on and communicate with some of these patients. Let's talk about a few more of these patients. Tell us the story of Jeff Tremblay. What had happened to Jeff? So Jeff had been attacked. He'd been kicked in the chest. He'd been beaten up outside a nightclub. This had produced a cardiac arrest, although his, many of his injuries to his body were traumatic injuries. The injury to his brain was what we call an anoxic injury. He'd had a loss of oxygen to his brain caused by the cardiac arrest resulting from him being kicked in the chest. So, you know, he really was a, a difficult case. And, and, and he was not the sort of case that I would normally expect necessarily to turn out to be aware of. Not necessarily one of our successful cases, except for the fact that he was a, a young man. He was relatively fit, uh, and that is generally a good a good indicator. 
one of the interesting things his father told me is that he, he takes Jeff to the movies every week. And he'd been doing this for many, many years. Jeff had been in this situation for almost two decades at the point that we, we saw him. And this struck me as being, you know, rather interesting. And the, the father said, well, I you know, take him there and he really enjoys it. I said, well, well, how do you know that he enjoys it? And he said, well, I, I just get a sense that he enjoys going to the movies. So what we did is we showed Jeff a movie while we were scanning him. And he was the first patient that we were able to demonstrate was aware. He wasn't in a vegetative state at all, despite it being diagnosed as such for almost two decades. And we were able to do that based on his brain responses while he was watching an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And that was actually that, that turned a new corner for us. It was an entirely new approach to this situation, simply watching the brain of a patient, watching a movie and deducing from the changes in brain activity whether or not they were aware and experiencing the movie much as you or I would in the same situation. Where do we go with this information? You know, now that you, you know, you've said it, it's not become standard clinical practice, but the technology has improved and that it sounds like we know that one in five vegetative patients have some level of awareness. What do we do with this information? So I think there's many different things we can do with the information. One of the stories I tell in, in the book is how we develop the technology to start communicating with some of these patients by getting them to answer yes and no questions by just changing the pattern of, of activity in their brains. And, you know, that's very important because we can ask them things that will improve their quality of life. We can ask them what music they would like to listen to, what TV they would like to watch, what time they would like their lights turned off at night, all of these things that they generally have no control over because they've, up until now, had no way of communicating with the outside world. And that's certainly already making a tremendous difference to some of these, these patients' lives. Of course, in the future, one could imagine that one could ask more complicated questions. We've already asked patients whether they're in any pain because that's something that we can do something about with pain medication. And the other area that we're really developing is to, is to try and work on the technology for assisted communication. Can we get these patients out of the MRI scanner, back home, and communicating with their relatives using something that's more portable and, and cost-effective than, than MRI? And that's another, another area where we and others are making significant progress. There are technologies like EEG or electroencephalography and something called functional near-infrared spectroscopy, or FNIRS, which I, I, you know, I think hold the promise of providing a, a communication tool, a so-called brain-computer interface for some of these patients to be able to communicate going forward with, with members of their family. Well, the issues are fascinating and complex, and the stories are just amazing. So, Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. The book, again, is called Into the Gray Zone, A Neuroscientist Explores the Border Between Life and Death by Adrian Owen. Joining us now, a familiar presence here on the podcast, but in a new role, Paul Sagal. Hi, Paul. Hey, Pamela. So the occasion for your appearance here on the podcast is not to talk about what we're reading, but to talk about your new role as one of the Times' new book critics. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I'm so excited and honored and, and as I said last time on the podcast, frantically reading and clearing bookshelf space. <laughs> and you've already written your first couple of reviews for the Times. That's right. So tell us what you've reviewed so far. I reviewed Danzi Sena's book, New People, the novel, and Karla Viknauskard's 
I think this is the seventh or eighth book, Autumn, which is sort of a letter to his unborn daughter. So how do you decide what it is that you want to write about? What do you want to review? That's so hard. I mean, I think it's very similar to the criteria I use when I would assign something for review mm-hmm. in my capacity as an editor. So I think that there are two things. One, you know, I'm looking for, you know, what moves me, what sort of excites me and, uh, Books especially that I think that there's something I can see in them that maybe somebody else wouldn't, you know? And that can be subject matter, that can be a certain kind of sensibility. And the second thing is is books that are noteworthy, books that I think readers should know about, good or bad, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but books that, you know, if you're in the conversation, you want somebody just sort of telling you that this is out in the world, this is my encounter with it. This is where it fits into other things that are happening in the culture so you're sort of arming. I like to think that you're giving, you know, you're, you're, you're doing um, work for the reader a little bit and preparing them to sort of, you know, go out in the world. It's interesting that you said um, books both good and bad right. but that are important. So how do you feel about negative reviews and the role of a, of a negative review or a very critical review? Fine. I'm very calm with it. You know, I'm, I'm not somebody who fears doing it or necessarily even feels bad doing it. I think and I think maybe that's also my style and that I don't think that I'm especially punitive. I Mm -hmm. think that when I don't like something, I like to figure out why I don't like it, Mm -hmm. you know. So there is a way of talking about what the book is trying to do and and, and where I think it falls short or where I think it's insufficient. That for me, yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm shaming it. Right. And I think that when when I have, have written reviews that have been a little bit more gleefully nasty, as I think you have to do to get it out of your system, and because it's kind of fun. Yes. But it it's kind of fun. <laughs> but I think like the longer you do it, like that kind of writing is just, it's it's not as interesting as the kind of writing that sort of says that, okay, I don't like this. What does it say about me? What does it say about the book? What does it say about the limits of my own taste? That becomes a very interesting conversation for me to have with myself on the page. All right. Well, I could spend a very long time talking about negative reviews, which is something I feel very strongly about and believe in. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to still have them because, you know, as you as you say, we're reviewing these books not for the benefit of the author That's or right. the we're publisher or the editor, for the readers, and they yeah. need to know. One of the interesting things is you have so many masters, right? So one of the masters and the most important, I think, in the capacity of being a newspaper critic is the reader yeah, and is to be truthful with the reader. Right. And then I think you also want to be truthful to yourself. And then I think that you're also, at least for me, you're thinking about, and I know this is going to sound pompous, but that's never stopped me before, but you're always thinking about literature, capital L, and you're always trying to say that this is good, this should endure. You right. know? So that for me feels like an important and ennobling aspect of the job. So you mentioned literature, um, but you're also covering nonfiction. That's right. And are there particular areas in nonfiction that interest you? Pamela, I'm omnivorous. You know, I read the back of a, like a cereal box. But I mean, when it comes to like things that I think I'm interested in surfacing, both Dwight Garner and Jen Senior are very good on this. But I think that there's certain kinds of books about science for the lay reader that I'm always very interested in, you know, and I think I'm actually kind of even interested in like, there are like tons of popular books about mathematics that I think are beautiful. And people love to sort of have a friendly guide and somebody they can trust going through it. And same with philosophy. I mean, the way that I'm conditioned is that I think I belong everywhere and can go everywhere Mm -hmm. as a reader and as a bungling person. (laughs) But I do want to sort of convey that in the review space that at least for me, when I was growing up in the world, my love for books is that nobody could keep me out. And I think that that's something very exciting. And there's a benefit to approaching a subject that you 
aren't necessarily 100%. steeped in because you're There's a stand-in no yeah, for you're, the reader. Totally. And you're sort of discovering what's exciting and obvious. And again, it also just goes back to what newspapers are for and like the beautiful sweep. Any day you open up the art section, opera, fashion, books. Mm -hmm. And the fun about being, I think, a book critic for newspapers is that you're talking to people that both are steeped deeply in it and people that don't know. People are like, oh, I don't know that this is an important writer or an interesting debate that's happening. And so you have to speak to both people. And I think that that challenge is really exciting and delicious to me. It's boring to talk to people that, you know, know everything to death about it, you know, like, but trying to be enticing, I think, mm-hmm. is something that... To draw that, people into absolutely, something that they and to give them know. enough context. But at the same time, hopefully, inshallah, being interesting and substantive enough not to turn away people that are coming at it with a more sophisticated or steeped knowledge of the subject. So who are your models as critics? Like, you know, dead, alive, gone, centuries past, people who write about books that you admire? Two of them work at the Times, Jen Senior and Dwight Garner, 100%. She's paid to say that, sponsored Absolutely. by the now Coalition this for out of Dwight the way. and Jen. All right. <laughs> no, but it's the, I mean, go on. <laughs> they are. I mean, Dwight, I've read, I've, I've been reading Dwight for years. Jen, when I was an editor, I would assign reviews to her because I just, I mean, she's just funny and biting and great. Beyond that, I think my favorite writers are critics. It's Elizabeth Hardwick and Martin Amis and Janet Malcolm's criticism and Zadie Smith's criticism, Daryl Pickney's. I mean, I just grew up reading reviews. Like I was just one of those people that I liked books, but I liked book chat. I liked book gossip. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to be in on the conversation. I just, I found criticism glamorous. I found the knowingness of it glamorous, the archness, the way that it's, it's not pious. You just, you feel in on a secret. So, I mean, I, I don't think that I, I have favorite writers that haven't dabbled in criticism. So in the past, where you were not a generally a staff critic, you've been reviewing books for a long time and won the Nona Balakian Prize from the National Book Critics Circle, but yeah. not always in a position where you could choose the books that you wanted to review, but mm-hmm. often they would be assigned to you. Mm-hmm. So of the books that either you picked yourself or were assigned, what have been some of the books that, that you most enjoyed having a say on? Oh, well, my memory is is just shattered. Uh, I know. Right you now. don't have your website in front of you. <laughs> I, <laughs> but I will tell you, I mean, so it's all going to be recent stuff, but I recently had the chance to sort of write at length about Arundhati Roy's new novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness. And that was very interesting to me because it was a chance to sort of think about a book that my own taste rebelled against. And Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Feeling the sort of constraints of taste and figuring that out and trying to figure out where that comes from. And then at the same time, it was a negative review, but it was a negative review of a of a writer who I have a lot of respect for and I think does a lot of really, really interesting things and has broken ground. So to try to think that through and think about the context that she is writing in and then trying to understand why this particular book isn't working. I'm going to ask uh, how the sausage is made question because I think people are always interested in this. You know, when you tell someone that, oh, you're a book critic and that you do generally a review a week from the outside, one might say, well, that is such a nice and easy job. Like, how lovely for you. You get to lie around the house, you read all day, and you jot down some notes, and then you sit down and you write the review. What a lovely, easy job. You must get to see a lot of movies and, you know, cook gourmet meals. It doesn't work that way. It's not. So there's a lot of um, reading around also I like to do. And I'm sure that there are critics that can just read the one book and riff on it. But I just, I like to 
read as much as humanly possible by that author, written around that author, other books, everything that anybody's written about that author. I like to make a really big file Mm -hmm. as I'm working on a review. I think that was very clear in your first review for us, the Danzy Senna, that you brought in interviews that she had done, previous books. No, I try to read as much as possible every single thing that has been written about that person and that that person has written. And like that is just not out of anxiety, but it's just like I just I I feel like I owe it to them. I feel like I owe it to them. And to them, I mean the writer and the reader. Then there's the thinking. And the thinking, my friend Catherine Schultz always says, is bespoke. Every time you write a review, you have to figure out your argument, your framework. You have to. And it's a very interesting, small, short form. It's like a sonnet, you know, Mm -hmm. so you really do have to take the sort of endlessly spiraling thoughts and feelings and somehow put them in this odd, very specific for me, very delightful format. All right. A little a, a question with another kind of sonnet-like answer, I think, <laughs> which is what for you makes a good review? What makes a good review? Mm-hmm. A re- Should I have said great? What makes a great review? <laughs> An immortal review. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it has to fulfill. I think you have to be honest with yourself and the reader. There has to be a sense of respect for the writer also and, and, and for the book and what the book wants to do. And then it has to be something stylish and substantial in its own right. I don't think that if you're writing anything, I mean, and again, the thing about news is that it's, it's news. It, it passes. It's fleeting. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I, I think and I feel very strongly that you want it to be something solid, something that stands on its own. You know, how many people reading a review go and read the book? I don't know. I don't want to know. <laughs> but I do want to feel like you've created something that can stand alongside that book. And you should be entertaining as much as possible. Yes, we believe in the fun. On that note. On that note. I'm sure you'll be doing all that and much more. So So we are all looking very much forward to your book criticism in the years to come. Thank you so much, Pamela. Thanks for being here, Paul. This is John Williams. I am joined by my colleagues Jennifer Schusler and Jennifer Salai to talk about what we're reading. Hi, guys. Hi. So we're down a couple of our regulars this week for the waning days of summer vacation, and I'm sure they're off somewhere reading something interesting that they'll talk about in the coming weeks. But let's talk about what we've been reading. Jenny Schusler, let's start with you. Well, I have been, I I seem to have gotten caught up in two separate but possibly unrelated waves of mass hysteria (laughs) that relates to natural phenomena. First, I have been reading... The French novelist Emmanuel Carrère's Who's book. Who's that? He's this guy. <laughs> I heard about him on this podcast. He's a French novelist, writer, and I've been reading his book Lives Other Than My Own, which was highly recommended by several of my colleagues, including <laughs> Jen Salai. And I think Pamela uh, talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And John. To recap, it begins with a description of the author, uh, or sort of an account of the the tsunami in Southeast Asia in, I guess it was 2004, and the sort of weirdness of being there around all these people who had, had, had lost people while not actually seeing it happen and being just inland enough at this resort in um, Sri Lanka. And it's a bit of a sort of sucker punch because... Pamela sort of sold it on the podcast as a tsunami book, and then it, but it kind of pivots halfway oh, yeah. through to being it's, about it's, yeah, a much else. more ordinary death of a sort of relatively ordinary middle-class woman in France, but it sort of explores loss. So I've been reading the viral book of the summer, according to the people at the book review. And then I also um, got caught up in total eclipse mania. Um, I drove <laughs> to Carbondale, Illinois, southern Illinois, from Chicago, where I'm from, to see the eclipse. And I didn't have that much time to uh, sort of mentally prepare or do a lot of, get a lot of the literary background on an eclipse, but it, it was kind of an amazing 
exhausting experience. And I've been trying to kind of, and very fleeting, like it happens and then it's over. And uh, so I've been trying to kind of, I don't know, not, I don't want to let it go. I don't want to let the experience go. So I um, was kind of looking around for stuff relating to the eclipse online. And I came across Annie Dillard's essay from, I guess, the uh, watching the eclipse in 1979, the last time a full solar eclipse crossed the United States. And it's this really beautiful essay about going to watch it in um, eastern Washington, the Yakima Valley. And I just want to read a brief passage, if that's not, uh, if that's okay. Please. This sort of starts in the middle, and I jump around a little bit. It began with no ado. It was odd that such a well-advertised public event should have no starting gun, no overture, no introductory speaker. I should have known right then that I was out of my depth. Without pause or preamble, silent as orbits, a piece of the sun went away. We looked at it through welder's goggles. A piece of the sun was missing. In its place, we saw empty sky. I had seen a partial eclipse in 1970. A partial eclipse is very interesting. It bears almost no relationship to a total eclipse. Seeing a partial eclipse bears the same relationship to seeing a total eclipse as kissing a man does to marrying him, or as flying in an airplane does to falling out of an airplane. Although the one experience precedes the other, it in no way prepares you for it. What you see in an eclipse is entirely different from what you know. It is especially different for those of us whose grasp of astronomy is so frail that, given a flashlight, a grapefruit, two oranges, and 15 years, we still could not figure out which way to set the clocks for daylight savings time. Usually it's a bit of a trick to keep your knowledge from blinding you, but during an eclipse it's easy. What you see is so much more convincing than any wild-eyed theory you may know. So my experience was a little less um, (laughs) sort of... Mystical and reverential, because I was not on a sort of isolated hilltop in eastern Washington. I was in a football stadium at Southern (laughs) Illinois University, and it was silent during the eclipse. Well, there was no, you know, no announcement and no music, and a lot of people are kind of screaming, partly because a gigantic cloud had rolled in and blocked the view, Mm. although it did part, and we did get to see it briefly, and then we saw the sun came back, and... Prior to that, there had been a mass moonwalk while the university band played Thriller. And at the very end, when everybody was kind of filing out, of course, they had to play the uh, last, you know, minute of Dark Side of the Moon. No, Bonnie Tyler. Thank God. Dark Side of the Moon. So, Wait, what do you mean, thank God? That Bonnie Tyler song is amazing. (laughs) Well, that's that's thought, that's okay. for another time. We're, we're, okay, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, 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 that's a debate for another time, Jen. I <laughs> I can only laugh at what you have in front of you. Yes. More career. More career. This is not and, my fault this week, John, and I'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. Well, what? I'll I'll let John explain yeah. what his whole plan for today was, but it turns out that now I am reading some of Carrere's fiction. So Barry again has sent me another one of his books and. The one that I'm reading right now is Class Trip, which is a short novel that I'm probably about two-thirds of the way through, and it's about a um, young boy who goes for a ski trip with his class. And you learn very early on that he's brought up in this household that's essentially very quiet, full of secrets. He himself has a very active, somewhat morbid imagination. And you just know that something bad is going to happen. And I'm still sort of waiting to get there. Ooh, but cliffhanger yeah. for next week. Yeah. Although we won't let you spoil it, probably. I, I don't want to spoil it. When you do find out. Okay. I'll, I'll hint. I'll give hints. Okay. So I'm on the train this morning, and I'm thinking about, you know, having to fill in for our fearless host. And I thought, okay, I'm still finishing up The Kingdom by Emmanuel Carrere, which I have about 75 pages left in, and I'm really enjoying. But I thought, you know, I've read this other book this week that I'll talk about in a second. And so 
This week, we will only indirectly mention Emmanuel Carrere. I will glancingly say that I'm still reading a certain French writer, and then we'll move on, and no one will actually talk about him. Then, in the elevator on the way down here, I see both of you holding his books. So anyway, host fail. I'm sorry, John. <sighs> it's okay. No, I, I love him, and I just got the book you're talking about in the mail, and I got his book, The Adversary. So I'm going to be reading them all year. We'll see if I—I'll probably spare podcast listeners at some point, but— what I read this week, in addition to He Who Shall Not Be Named a Thousandth Time, is Jeff Dyer's book, But Beautiful, which is subtitled, appropriately enough, a book about jazz. I went last weekend with some friends to see the saxophonist Joshua Redman at the Village Vanguard, and he completely blew all of us away. And this book is something I've been meaning to read for, I don't know, 15 years or something. So I finally picked it up. And it's really a, a series of fictionalized portraits of famous jazz musicians, Charles Mingus, Chet Baker, Lester Young, Thelonious Monk, and a few others. And it really is, it's one of the loveliest things I've ever read. It's so lyrical, so sad. It gets into these men's lives, and it does sort of feel like a ballad in many ways. And the writing is outstanding on every page, pretty much. And I'll, I'll read a little bit in a second. But I had this incredible experience on the train this morning because I, I was reading this page, and I thought about how sentimental this book is and how it could almost reclaim the word because everyone hates, everyone claims to hate sentimentality. But I thought there's nothing else to call a lot of what's in this book. And yet it's really great. And then literally two paragraphs later, he starts riffing on the idea of why jazz gets away with sentimentality. And it was this very odd kismet moment where Jeff Dyer and I, for the first time ever, probably had a mind meld. So I just want to read because the first segment about Lester Young, the saxophonist, is just a great place to start. And he spent some time in the army that was kind of traumatizing to him where he was mistreated by his superiors. And I, I, people say that after that, you know, he was never quite the same. But there's this one paragraph that just gives you a sense of Dyer's rhythms. And this is where Young is going to the movies. He left the hotel and walked to a cinema where She Wore a Yellow Ribbon was playing. He had already seen it, but that made no difference. He had probably seen every Western ever made. The afternoon was the worst part of the day, and a movie swallowed up a good part of it in one gulp. At the same time, he didn't want to spend the afternoon in the dark watching movies set at night, gangster movies or horror films. In Westerns, it was always afternoon, so he was able to avoid the afternoon and get a nice helping of it at the same time. He liked to get high and let the images float before his eyes like the nonsense they were. He'd sit with the old and the infirm, unsure of who were deputies and who were outlaws, indifferent to everything on the screen except for the bleached landscape and stagecoach clouds hauling their way across sand-blue skies. He couldn't have made it through the day without westerns, but all the time he was watching them, he was eager for them to end, impatient for the whole charade of settled scores to be over with so that he could emerge again into the fading daylight. There's lots of that in this book. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, John. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.